For the course of the weekend, we want to look at various issues we face in life. It's interesting that we live in a world where man knows more about man than ever before. Something happens in Germany yesterday, and a few hours later the whole world knows about it and watches it on TV. Not only does, does man know more about man today than ever before, but we know more about our environment than ever before. We can describe it in greater detail. And then there's another unique thing, and that is man, in a sense, knows more about himself today than ever before. And in the midst of all of our knowledge, it's interesting that maybe never in the history of mankind have we had a greater time of crisis. Last night, my wife and I watched the news at 10 o'clock. After about 20 minutes of it, and I wanted to get to bed early, I said, look, we don't need to watch any more of this. Why don't we turn it off? Every single item that was shown was an item of crisis, an item of discouragement, an item of frustration, and yet we know so much. In the midst of all that we know, we are driven to consider many issues. We are a people that are driven to face many issues in life, that which you saw a few minutes ago, much of it touched on the issue of identity and security as they certainly go hand in hand. Constantly one has to grapple with loneliness. Again and again we discover the pressure of discouragement and depression and guilt and all that that can do to a person. There are many of you that weren't sure if you could come this weekend or not because life is full of many pressures. The issue of studies, the issue of responsibility to parents, and so on. Some of you sit tonight and over the weekend and very much in your mind is the issue of marriage. It's in the emotions of many, it's in the minds of a few or suddenly it moves from the emotions to the mind of, is this really what I should do? Is he the one? Is she the one? There's also the issue of my future. Many of you are seniors. Some of you are sophomores and will soon leave at junior college. Then you say, my future, you who are freshmen and sophomores and even juniors face the question of your major. There seem to be so many pressures in life that you begin to wonder if if there's such a thing as a balanced life, and what would a balanced life look like anyway? And then, every day we are confronted with the issue of the will, another issue, the issue of death, another the issue tying into the will, the matter of making choices. Many of you have read Future Shock, Poplar in there talks about you can go and buy a Mustang, but you'll have 25 million choices to make. From the standpoint of what kind of hubcaps, to what kind of engine, to what kind of interior, all of these parts. During the course of the weekend, we want to look at some of these issues listed above, carefully and clearly. And we want to see how this book, the Bible, will lead me to face these issues realistically and intelligently. 
Now, as we look at some of the issues listed above, we will use two sets of eyes. As though we put on two pairs of glasses. It would be my hope that before the weekend is over, you've decided to use only one pair of those glasses and that you have thrown out the other pair. The eyes that we will use are the following. Initially, these terms will seem rather fancy. Eventually, I hope they become rather simple. And that is, we'll put on the pair of glasses, and on the rims, you'll find written biblical theology. And then we'll take off those glasses, and we'll put on another pair called emotional theology. Now, in your notes there, it would help you to put on the side that if we define theology in a very technical, narrow way, theology is the study of God. The Greek word is theos, meaning God. But in another sense, theology has a broader meaning where we take a look at how God and man relate, or else how they don't. So when we're talking about biblical theology, we're talking about what the Bible says about how God and men relate. When we're talking about emotional theology, we'll tell you what we mean there in a minute. Biblical theology will involve four currents that flow all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible begins with the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The foundation of all of Scripture is the nature of God. And from that base, then God tells me about my own nature. And I come to grips with the nature of man. And in view of my nature and God's nature, then God unveils his plan for me and to me. And then God lets me know the process by which that plan is carried out. It might help you to put out to the side the nature of God, tells me what God is like. The plan of God tells me what God does. And the process of God tells me how God does it. Now, emotional theology involves this. It involves either ignoring or disagreeing with one of the currents of biblical theology. It says, no, I don't really believe that God is a God of love. I don't accept that in terms of the nature of God. I don't think he's a God of love at all. Well, it means that I disagree with the fact that God even has a plan. Or, I can admit that God has a plan, but I totally ignore it. So what? I want to do my thing. That's emotional theology. Now tonight, we want to look at two words which are very significant issues. They hinge together. They almost are inseparable. And those are the words identity and security. And so we raise the question, what causes us to frequently have identity or security struggles? I'm certain that some of you, as we gathered together back in Pasadena today, you have trouble with crowds. 
that there's uh, a little uh, pressure time inside. Boy, I don't know anybody. And so you begin to hunt for your one friend among 470 people. And it's very difficult to find that one friend compared to if there are only 30 people. Many times new situations quickly surface in security. And it becomes time for identity crisis. Some of you got a new roommate this year. Lots of identity crisis in the process. Many times new roles can reveal a great deal of insecurity in somebody. You once were a senior in high school, big man in campus. Then you became a freshman in college. Little peon in campus. And you didn't quite know how to handle that role. Once you were the big athlete in high school, now you're just one of the masses playing intramural. You're called the has-been. You don't quite know how to handle that role. Once your profs knew you personally, that was nice. Now it's as though you sit in a sea of who knows what. And the prof there looks out and gives his lofty lectures. It seems that he could almost care less whether you are there or not. How do you handle that new role? Many times it suddenly becomes a great tension in our identity. One of the greatest problems that surfaces with identity and security struggles is the whole area of comparison. You begin comparing yourself to someone else. I was as short as or as tall as. I was as athletic as or as musical as. I was as smart as or as muscular as or as wealthy as. Then I could be commended. Many times, we go through inner difficulties of identity because we feel misunderstood. That can leave many scars. Many times we know great identity and security struggles because we feel very unnecessary, very unneeded. We have no sense of worth. And so we leave one group to go to another, hoping that in that other group we'll have some worth. Or we leave one major and go to another because the profs didn't who and ah over us enough in the previous majors that we had. Or leave one roommate and try another roommate. Or one dorm and try another dorm. Or one college and try another college. All the time, driven by the tremendous internal need for identity and security. Many times, the way we really handle it is found at the bottom of that page, Proverbs chapter 18. And frequently during the course of the weekend, I want to show you from Scripture verses that I believe will help explain maybe some of the patterns of your own life. I think many times we do things and we don't understand why and we're sort of baffled by it all. And it can be very helpful to try and understand why. Here the Bible describes some things. Proverbs 18, read carefully with me. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. 
The fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Many times, when you are in the midst of identity and security struggle, you pull back. You withdraw. Follow the verse carefully. And as you separate yourself, you seek your own desire. You become quarrelsome. You soon become angry with certain types of people or certain groups of people. And when somebody tries to give you understanding, you can't even hear them. For all you're involved in is revealing your own mind. I recall in the East Coast, there was a guy who went to a college in New England. There's a big-name college. People who go to big-name colleges tend to think they're big-name people. We had an interesting discussion one night. I had finished speaking on a certain subject, and uh, he was talking to a few people. And so finally I went over and I just stood in the edges of it. And then he saw me there, he sort of turned at me just like he had a bazooka in his hand, you know. He was all ready to go up my jugular. So I listened for a few minutes. And then finally I sort of laughed at him. I looked him in the face, he was about three or four inches taller than I was. And I stood up and I said, uh, hey, you know what? Uh, you reveal a lot of things to me. Boy, all of a sudden his face wasn't as shining as it was a minute before. He said, you know what the things you tell me? I'll put in a question for him first. Have you ever read the Gospels? Uh, he said, no, I really haven't. He said, you're an absolute fool. You've been boiling off steam there for 20 minutes as though you know the Gospels backwards and forwards. You've been describing Jesus and telling me all that he isn't and everything else. You've never even read the Gospels. You're a scholar? What school do you go to? He said, don't give me that garbage. You've turned off the switch, the learning switch. You're just a big mouth. I dare you to do this. You take the next two weeks and read the Gospel of John, then I'll be glad to talk to you. Well, boy, you can imagine, you know, he was sort of a little taken back. But it was very interesting. About 10 days later, I was in Baskin Robbins. And you know who saw me? That guy. He said, boy, Chuck, I can't. Oh, hey, I need to ask you some questions. John chapter 4, what's this mean? John chapter 7, what's this mean? John 12, what's this mean? I said, hey, it's really intriguing. The mask is down now. That's great. But it's very easy to be just like Proverbs 18 says. The nature of man. You withdraw. You separate yourself. And you set out in your own desires. And in the process... You become the center and circumference of all wisdom, of all knowledge, of all understanding. It's a very unwise thing to do. But it's what you will do many times when you're going through identity crisis, when you're going through hard times of security. It will happen to you many times. But I want us tonight to take a look at a man that is going to serve, I hope for the whole weekend, as a powerful, positive model, as a man with shocking identity and security. Turn with me to page two. 
The name of the man is Joshua. I want to set the stage for you historically, then I want you to do some studying, all right? You look at the overhead for a minute. Here are the Israelites in the land of Goshen. As a fairly young man, Joshua becomes the understudy of Moses. Moses is the leader of the Israelites. Joshua is his constant companion. When Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the commandments from God written on stone, there is Joshua with him. Again and again, Moses and Joshua are locked together. God frees the Israelites from bondage to the Egyptians and they come down to Mount Sinai. There God gives them the Ten Commandments. They build the tabernacle, the place of worship. Moses is in leadership. Then through a unique and unfortunate chain of events, they decide to disobey God and not go in and possess the land. And so God allows them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. God says it will be like this. None of you will enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb and their descendants. Your descendants will enter the land, but none of you will. And so, here's where we are now when we turn to Joshua chapter 1. There are the Israelites, and they've just moved into this area to the right, to the east of the Dead Sea. Moses has been in leadership. Come with me to Joshua 1, let me read verse 1, and then I'll tell you how I'd like to read it. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, and so on. Now, if you'll take page 3, the page that's stapled underneath the text of Joshua 1, here's what I'd like you to do. Read Joshua 1 fairly rapidly, first of all, and then go back and read it a little slower and list the qualities of God. What do you learn about the nature of God? And then what do you learn about the nature of man, this man Joshua? What do you learn about him? And then what do you learn about the plan of God? And finally, how does God put his plan to work? What do you learn about the process of God? Now, in the midst of it, here's what you're trying to think about. As you work through these four currents, let the melody that plays underneath be this. What do I see about identity and security of Joshua? What do I see about his identity? What do I see about his security? How does the nature of God play on the identity and security of Joshua? How does the plan of God play in the identity and security of Joshua? How does the process of God influence the identity and security of Joshua? Have a good time as you study. You'll have about five to eight minutes to do it. I want in the next few minutes to walk through some of the characteristics that will give us more of a feel of biblical theology and try and illustrate how this made the difference in the life of Joshua 
as he steps into leadership. First of all, we see the nature of God, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Crucial to my understanding of God is to realize that God is aware of human events. God is not disinterested in history. He is the God of history. The Psalms describe God in the following way. He never slumbers nor sleeps. God is always alert to what is going on in human history. And there may be times when you're totally convinced that God is not. That's emotional theology. You're disagreeing with one of the very basic parts of the nature of God. God is always aware of human events. And there may be a problem that you've brought here, maybe a situation that you're in, and you're convinced that God doesn't have any idea about it. Maybe you've prayed about something for months, and nothing's happened and you're convinced that God just doesn't care and he certainly isn't mindful of it. That's emotional theology. When you're disagreeing with one of the currents in the, in the biblical theology, namely you're telling God that he really isn't aware of too many things. There's another phrase that comes out of this. The Lord spoke to Joshua. The Bible makes the awesome claim and then illustrates it that God speaks to men, that God communicates with men. It's a very thrilling fact to know that this is what God is like. He really communicates with men. Then come with me to verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. The next phrase. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. The statement is first, then the verse. So don't get confused. But here's one of the most exciting facts found in the nature of God, that God is a God of continuity. Some of you are experiencing the problem in your education of no continuity. Now, not just for certain reasons, but some of you, for example, that hope to be teachers, and you're suddenly confronted with the fact of, well, wait a minute, what catalog am I really under? Or which law is it that really applies to me? You know, what they're doing in Sacramento, boy, it's really confusing. And you come to discover there isn't too much continuity in the way men put things together. But God is a God of remarkable continuity. And as I have been with Moses, and as that chapter has come to a close, Joshua, so I will be with you. Some of you are discovering that your own life is anything but a life of continuity. And that confuses you. And it confuses your parents even more so. 
And back in high school, you wanted to be a certain thing. And then first two years of college, it was, oh boy, I'm so excited about marble making. I just would love to go into that. And then after you took advanced marble making, you got tired of that. You decided that is what you want to do. So your last two years of college, boy, now you've really been plowing hard in another major. And you hate to tell anybody, but you whisper to yourself every once in a while, I don't like my present major either. So your parents look at you and say, you know, you're really messed up. Your life is just one fad after another. Eventually it needs to be more than that. And God says, let me tell you what I am like. I am a God of continuity. As I was with Moses, Joshua, so I guarantee you, I will be with you. I have a hunch that was good news to Joshua. And then God starts to unveil his plan. It's a good plan. It's a unique plan. Come with me. To verse 5. Middle of the verse, I will be with you. Verse 9. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. One of the things that God does is he's a God who guarantees his presence. At the heart of the plan of God is God's guarantee of his presence. God never, 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 never leaves his people alone. Now again, maybe time or times in your life when you feel alone and deserted. Deserted even by God. That's emotional theology. That's disagreeing with biblical theology, when God says, I will always be with you. And as God is with man, then he gives man directive. Verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. With his people, He says, you know what? I'm a God that writes new chapters. I want to lead you into new territory. Joshua, I want you to take all the people and cross over and conquer some new territory. I think also it's crucial to see here, and you might want to write another principle that comes out of this passage, not only does God lead me into new territory, but God always breaks the pattern of being a loner. God's plan isn't only one-on-one. -on -one. It always involves the part, but also the whole. It isn't Joshua, now you can go across, but Joshua, you, you lead all the people across. 
But it's so easy in life to build my identity on what I want to do and when I want to do it. And I will do it at least with myself and maybe with no one else. And don't bother me any other way. But when God does it, I will be moved into new territory with new people. There are some other exciting things that come to bear on the plan of God. It's the verse about the Reubenites and the Gadites and those from Manasseh. Let me show it on the map first of all. Presently, the Israelites are here ready to cross and take Jericho. They have conquered this area. They have settled here. And now God says, you know what? I want the tribes on the east side of the Jordan. You leave your wives and your children here and you cross over with all of us. And as you do, move together to help all of us settle the land. And then you can return to your wife and to your children. And so come with me to verse 12. And God unveils again a very crucial principle in his plan. Reubenites, Gadites, half of Manasseh, cross and help them. God turns loners into a supportive community. One of the greatest problems of humanity, if not the greatest, is the issue of selfishness. I, 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 I. But God says, no, wait a minute, let me talk to you about my plan. It will involve we, 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 we. It will involve all, not just you. It's not an I plan, not a me plan. It's a we plan and an our plan. Very different from how we usually think. But how does that work itself out? Verse 14. Your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them. In the process of God, you help the whole and not just your part. That which the world cries about, that which the world longs for, a helping community is what God produces. The process of God says, see the whole and help the whole, not just the part. The next principle I want to share from the plan of God is really taken from verses 5 through 9. And the principle that I think we can see there is this. The plan of God guarantees my identity and security. It guarantees my security. I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. It guarantees my security. If you do according to all that's in the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you, You'll know success. You'll have a prosperous way. Don't panic. The plan of God always guarantees my identity and security. But that isn't enough. Just to have a guarantee in a piece of paper. 
God says, now let me talk to you and help you understand that the process of God develops my identity and security. I have a hunch when Joshua spoke to those two and a half tribes, that was his first time in leadership, speaking, giving directive. I have a hunch. At the end of chapter one, Joshua had developed a little more identity and security about who God was and how good his plan was because Joshua had walked in the process. It's one thing to say, isn't it nice that God's with me? It's another thing to step out and discover that he is. And there are many of you who in a sense know the plan of God part. You know the guarantee. You've heard that a lot. But you don't know the process too well because you haven't stepped out to let God develop that great sense of identity and security that only comes when you step out in obedience and are willing to obey. There's a fourth part to the plan of God that I'd like to point out. It's found in verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. God places godly models in our life that we are to admire and obey. Maybe tomorrow you'll want to take a minute and write down or just underline the times the word Moses is found in chapter 1. Never is God embarrassed to say to Joshua, Joshua, Moses, 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 Moses. And Moses had school, and Joshua had school into his mind that model, both psychology today continually tells us the best way of learning is through modeling. Now, however, I want to raise three questions about Joshua and his nature. And I would like to raise them in the framework of the per first person singular, though I'll use the word you because of communication here. If you were Joshua, if I was Joshua, here I am, I've heard about the nature of God. Boy, I'm glad that you're aware that Moses is dead. I'm glad you're aware of human events. And I'm grateful that you're a God of continuity. And I appreciate your plan, that you'll be with me. Your presence is always with me. I appreciate that. But now, if you were Joshua, how would you have felt about Moses? How would you have felt about Moses? I have a hunch that some of us might have felt, boy, I'm always going to be under that guy's shadow. I'm so tired of that. Why can't we forget about Moses? He's dead. And I'm here now, Joshua. And I've been in this school long enough. I've followed Moses long enough. I know how to do this. 
And God, all you do is keep burning into me the name Moses. I'm tired of it. For example, verse 7. God, why couldn't you say it like this? Only be strong and courageous to be careful to do according to all that God has commanded. Why did you have to remind me again that it came through the vehicle of Moses? There are some of you, some of us, myself included, and I have a hunch that in our humanness it would have been very easy to be angry with Moses because he threatened our identity. Finally, it was as though we had moved from being on a bench to playing first string. It's as though we move from being juniors to now being the great seniors. It's as though we move from being the vice president to becoming the president. Oh, the great identity that I finally will have. And all God does is bring up Moses. How would you have responded? How would I have responded? if I was Joshua. How would you have felt about Moses? And secondly, how would you have felt about yourself? How would you have felt about yourself? Would you have felt worthless? Would you have felt that you lost your individuality? That you're just a pawn in the chessboard? Would you have felt that there was, there was no sense of, boy, I, Joshua, will do the unique? Because God's a God of continuity and so the chapters go on, but I'm sick of that. I want to write my own book. Can I do that? Aren't I capable of doing that? Isn't that how I gain identity? I'm just to keep following on and just carry on and start another chapter of the same book? Lord, I want to write my own book. How would you have felt about yourself? How would you have seen yourself if you were Joshua? Would you have seen yourself as, as always being the student, never being the teacher? Lord, since a fairly young boy, I walked with Moses. I've been very close to him. Lord, don't you think I can carry it on now? But it's interesting. You never sense any bitterness or any, any identity crisis or any insecurity coming out of Joshua, do you? You don't sense any rebellion towards Moses. He even talks about Moses in clear, glowing tones and colors. Amazing identity. Amazing security. If you were Joshua, if I was Joshua, would I have such security and such identity? 
on the third question. How would you have felt if, about Moses, about yourself? And how would you have felt toward those men? In a sense, to me, that's the crowning blow of the whole chapter. You've just finished giving your first speech to your audience, to the people that you were going to lead. And this is their response, verse 16. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Now, if that's where it stopped, I could just sense Joshua being thrilled and blessed. But all of a sudden, verse 17 comes in. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things. Oh, no. So we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you. How would you have felt towards those men? I'll tell you how a lot of 20th century humanity would have felt. Here's the word. I'm sick of comparison. Will you quit comparing me to everybody else? Why can't I be myself? Why can't I be an individual? Why can't I do what I want to do? Why do I have to follow in somebody else's footsteps? Why do I have to be like most? I'm tired of this Jesus bit always taking away my individuality. Why do I have to be compared with somebody else? How would you have felt toward those men? But that which intrigues me is Joshua never seems bothered by the enemy of Adam. And why didn't Joshua feel and respond with a human nature that knew threat, that knew insecurity, that knew tremendous identity crisis? Was Joshua a weak man? Is that why he just sort of followed like an anemic man? As though he had no backbone and couldn't go any other direction if he wanted to? Is that Joshua? If you think it is, read the book of Joshua, you may get a different perspective. But there's something about Joshua that really comes to bear. Joshua lived in the framework of the nature of God and the plan of God and the process of God. Never is there any hint that Joshua says, Lord, you're not with it. I don't believe you. Joshua responds to the nature of God with great joy. Never is there any sense that Joshua is unaware of the plan of God. He learned it from the knees of Moses. That's where he learned it. And he learned the plan of God in such a way so that it was so much a part of him that he was a man who counted it a great joy to do it. He loved the plan of God. I did my master's degree thesis in the book of Joshua. Part of my thesis was that. In this book, Joshua makes 44 decisions. Two of them were wrong because he did not consult God. But most of the decisions Joshua made, about 42 of them, were godly. 
were in agreement with the plan of God. And I believe all but about three or four of them, God didn't even tell him to make. God didn't directly say, Joshua, I want you to do this now. You know why God didn't do that? Because Joshua had learned all about the plan of God at the knee of Moses. And so God didn't need to tell Joshua again. Joshua had heard it once and it was settled down. It was part of it. Joshua was a man caught up with the nature of God. There he was on the mountain with Moses, awed at the glory of God. There he was watching the plan of God as the Israelites were freed from bondage. There he was intimately involved in the process, one of the leaders as they left Egypt. There he was intimately involved in the process of God, one of the twelve spies, to see whether the land was what it was cooked up to be. And so when it came time for Joshua to take the reins, Joshua had his identity. My identity is, I am one who belongs to the living God, and I will obey him. When Joshua took the reins, he had his security. The God who was with Moses, boy, do I ever have memories of that, will be with you. Man, I am secure. I need no other security. Let me be compared to Moses. That's fine. Let the people say, you be like Moses. That's all right. Because I so admire God's work in Moses, it would be an honor someday to be like Moses. And suddenly a, a man who so easily could have known great identity and security crisis does not experience that at all. And he takes over the leadership. And the God of continuity writes another chapter. And in chapter 4 of Joshua, let me read from it. Now the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, have crossed the Jordan River. And they set up an altar of twelve stones, one for each tribe, to remind them that they crossed the river. And to remind them that God worked that out. And then something else happened. And on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. So that the Israelites respected Joshua just as they had Moses. Identity comes when you're willing to be a servant of the living God. And that's your identity. I'm a servant of the living God. Security comes when I know that each step I take is taken in agreement with the plan and process and nature of God. I close with this question. What part of biblical theology needs to be more a part of you and me if we are to be Joshua-like. What part of biblical theology needs to be more a part of you and of me if we are to be Joshua-like? Let me put it like this. Do you think God could radically change your nature 
to the extent that your response would be Joshua-like. You think God could do that? Would you be open to seeing God do that? See, what made the difference in Joshua was that God changed his nature. His nature. He was not a threatened man because his identity was, I am the servant of the living God. God changed his nature. And because his nature was changed, his response was different. Instead of a response of jealousy, instead of a response of insecurity, instead of a response of, oh, oh my identity's threatened, his response was that of, I serve the living God. That's who I am. Servant of the living God. I desire no more identity than that. I need no more identity than that. And if I am compared to Moses, hallelujah, he's a great one to be compared to. And if I am compared to somebody else who is godly, and they say, oh, we hope you'll be like that person, hallelujah, I need to become like that person and be one who follows their model. Are you willing to really believe that God could radically change your nature so that your response, rather than being self-centered, would be servant of God. You'll never know a stable, giving, enjoyable life with emotional theology. Your insecurity will surface all over you. Threats to your identity will constantly break your back. But God says, I'm willing to be with you wherever you go. But then I'll tell you where to go. You go and lead the people to new territory. Let's pray together. Father, in a world that changes so rapidly, it's easy to wonder, who am I? In a world of constant comparison, it's easy to be angry when we're compared with someone else. Instead of to appreciate godly models around us and be willing to model after them. Lord, in a world that shouts at us, individuality, do your own thing. so easy to think, Lord, that your plan will remove my individuality. 
And yet, Lord, I'm pretty convinced tonight that if Joshua would, drawn, would have gone his own way, that we probably wouldn't even know his name tonight. Lord, I pray that as we go to our rooms, you would give us significant conversation about what part of biblical theology needs to be more in my life. And maybe it really is saying, Lord, I want you to radically change my nature. I am sick of my responsibility life, to people, to myself. Lord, radically change my nature. For I want to become a man, a woman of godly response. Show us the wisdom of that, Lord. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you in the morning. Have a good night, sir. Morning, we go on from where we were last night. Wanting again to take a look at some issues that all of us face continually. Wanting to see again these issues through two sets of glasses. Biblical theology, the whole idea of how does God relate to man and how can man relate to God. And this brings us to the issue of the nature of God, the nature of man, the plan of God, what is it that God does in the process of God, how does God do it. Now, I realize that to use the word emotional theology can be a little strong by comparison. And I understand, you know, well, and, and know that there are some of you who, whether it's for the first time, will find it a little difficult to sort of handle those two terms. But I hope that you'll listen carefully to the fact that God's been around for a long time. And he's handled many generations. Significant statement is that the shores of time are cluttered with discarded beliefs. It's a great tragedy, but it's true. When I would speak experientially, I can say that it's been my privilege to know Christ for more than 25 years. In fact, in about another two weeks, I will have known Christ for 30 years. Now, I don't mean to imply that I've always obeyed him fully, nor that I this day obey him fully. But I do mean to share with you that I'm able, I think, to speak from a base of a rather long experience with Jesus Christ. I know what it means to be a college student. I know what it means to be a graduate student. I know what it means to be married. We'll celebrate our 16th anniversary the end of June. I know what it means to live in different parts of the country. We've grown up in the Midwest, 
to administer there for a while, then to administer in Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and now on the West Coast. So I have better maybe than an average feel of the different parts, some of the different parts of America. God has chosen to bless us with children. Scott is going to be 10 in June. Dean just turned seven, and Christy is three and a half. So I speak from the dimension of being a husband and being a father. I have a little experience in endeavoring to put to work the truths of this book in everyday life. I have the privilege to mingle not only with collegians, but also with men and with women and couples. I know what it means to sit with men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s who are totally disillusioned with life, even though by many of your standards they have everything. I have been driven more and more to accept with great significance a statement that a man named Paul writes to a young man. It's interesting that he wrote it to a young man. And he writes to a man named Timothy and he describes certain people. And he says there are some people who are always seeking but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. I think in the college ranks, uh, we tend sometimes to call those people the professional students. You may know some. I've had lunch in the last four months with some men in their 40s and 50s. They're ever seeking. If they would write for you a biographical sketch, they have tried many things. And yet they would say, when I said to one man, I believe that I can offer to you and extend to you that which will make your life richer. I believe that I can offer to you in Jesus Christ one who will make your life more complete. I believe that I offer to you in Jesus Christ one who will fulfill you. And to see a man a success in many areas, they go further, I'm very willing to listen. I would appreciate that. We live in a world supposedly of tolerance, but I'm intrigued at how intolerant and intolerant people are. Tolerant of everything. To the point their mind looks like a garbage dump. They have no discernment. They just, whatever's coming along, they put it in ever seeking, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And Paul said to that young man, listen carefully, all scripture, this book, is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the faith and for correcting error. It's useful for resetting the direction of a man's life and training him in good living. The scriptures are the comprehensive equipment of the man of God and fit him fully for all branches of God's work. This book is the written comprehensive equipment of the man of God. Therefore, we will take very seriously what this book says. The currents that run through it. And therefore, we must also face the issue that man 
makes tragic decisions when he ignores or disagrees with one or more of the currents of biblical theology. I'm very anxious for you who are with us for the first time to know that we like you, that we really, in a very significant way, feel honored that you would spend a weekend with us. We know that there are a lot of things you can do with your weekend. And we are very grateful that you would make the time to spend a weekend with us. I think you will begin to discover that yes, we are a people with a certain conviction level. I would hope that it's a high conviction level about the significance and the reality of Jesus Christ in human life. We would be totally phony if we prayed as though that was not important to us. It is extremely important. In no way does that mean that we have arrived. It's called a pilgrimage. But a pilgrimage that has allowed us to know and then to further develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, that's why many times some of you have seen me do that. And know well the wisdom of that. I remember when I was in college and then in graduate school, I used to wonder if this book and the person this book described, Jesus Christ, would be adequate enough for my life for the rest of my time on the earth. Or if there would come a time when my faith would be so intimidated that I would have to leave it. I would say this. If I was convinced of Jesus Christ in college, which I was, I am 100% more convinced of him today. I have put him to the test. I have watched him take me through situations, not situations that have always been easy. I have watched him take me through those situations. And I have come to discover that whenever I slide into the framework of emotional theology, I am in trouble. That whenever I begin to think that I, on my own, am okay, I am in trouble. For example, I know well the slipperiness and subtleness of the devil. We've just come in from playing pushball. That was woodshedded by the staff, thought through, worked through, pounded out. Uh, we experimented with it. And yet, the, ori the original kernel of the idea came from me. And so the devil, in his own wonderful way, is very good at saying, gee, Chuck, you did really well there. Nate, that the game went so well. You're really great, Chuck. You're a good head. Boy, really fine. Instead of forgetting what, my mind is a gift from God. And as God works in it and gives me ideas, they are God's ideas, not my ideas. George Washington Carver, if you've never read about him, 
the man who discovered so many uses of the soybean, but never did he have any patented. And when asked why, and he could have died as a very wealthy man, but he chose not to, if he would have patented his things, he said, the reason I will not have any of it patented is for this. The only reason I've been allowed to discover it is because God's let me discover it. So what right do I have to put my name on it? I know well the temptation, however, of ignoring my nature, that it can be a nature of pride. I know well the temptation of being so involved in running fast that, that God's plan is trampled instead of God's plan becomes the vehicle through which I discern things. I know well the temptation to feel that God is removed from me, that there is great distance between me and God. And then I become depressed, discouraged. And that brings us to the issue of the morning. How do you handle discouragement? How do you handle depression? How do you handle guilt? You might want to write in the back of the green sheets and the blank side, and eventually then we'll take you to them. The constant challenge in life is the frustration of being discouraged with yourself. And frequently the discouragement comes because you've set a goal for yourself and you haven't measured up. You want to make all A's and you haven't quite done that. You're disappointed. You wanted to make the varsity and you haven't made the varsity yet. You wanted to be the lead in the play and, well, you get to work in the stage crew. And there's this deep disappointment that you know because you haven't measured up to what you expected of yourself. Many times, you're not discouraged with yourself only, but you can become very discouraged with your situation, your professors, your roommates, your living situation, and then that which can just pop your balloon very well, and mine as well, is when you become discouraged with your friends. The friends you relied on, and they let you down. You don't quite know what to do now. Many of you have walked through a paragraph in your life, you may still be in that paragraph, where you're very discouraged with your parents. You would give anything if they could wake up. You would give anything if they could be as intellectual and intelligent and as capable and competent as you are. You would give anything if somehow certain things would happen. So you become discouraged with parents. Some of you come to the weekend discouraged with a boyfriend or girlfriend relationship, afraid of the dear John Weather, angry that you behaved a certain way and now you're panicked lest he or she say goodbye to you. And I'm certain in a group this large, it's easy for you to be discouraged with God. You sort of designed the plan that God was to carry out for you and he hasn't done it yet. So you're very discouraged with God. And frequently, we move from discouragement to depression. It becomes hard to study. It becomes hard to be with people. It becomes very difficult to read the Bible. Very difficult. Your alarm goes off in the morning. You can barely fall out of bed. 
You can hardly drag your son out of the stack, much less the class. You're so depressed. It's called a rut. It's called a grave with both ends kicked out. And frequently the discouragement and the, and the depression grows out of a five-letter word called guilt. I was talking to a doctor a couple of years ago, and we had talked in the area of guilt some, and he said, you know what, Chuck? I would lose half of my practice if people could solve the problem of guilt. If people would face the issue that guilt is real, and guilt does many things to the physical body. We live in a world that wants to do away with a deep sense of wrong. And so now we have taken seven men and we've put them on the pedestal. And we shoot bullets at them, arrows at them, and everything else at them. And how wrong those Watergate men are. When in reality, all they are is a reflection of us all they are. I do know the issue also of false guilt. There are some of you that handle that. You're sort of a self-condemning person. Always down in yourself. You don't tie your shoelaces right. You know, you don't do this. You don't do anything right. And so you live with this gigantic cloud over you of really false guilt. You need to get rid of that. I'll talk more about that later. Frequently a self-condemning person with false guilt is a martyr complex type. They carry their bottle of pills with them very close, pop one in whenever needed. But there is today, and there always has been, a very issue of real guilt. You know that what you did was wrong. But how do you handle that? You'll handle it one of two ways. It was wrong. But if you're not willing to admit it was wrong and confess it as sin, you'll have to justify it. You've got to somehow handle your behavior. We always have to explain our behavior or else you can't live with yourself. And so though initially you might have known it was wrong, eventually your feelings overrule. And now you justify that which you've done. It's a tragic thing to do. Sometimes you justify it because you don't feel there's any way you can dispose of the guilt. There's no way to get rid of the guilt. So you've got to justify the wrong. Such as everybody else is doing it. What's wrong with it? And I've always done it. What's wrong with it? However, guilt is very real. It's probably the worst disease in the earth. I've done a great deal of marriage counseling. You'll really watch guilt come out there. Guilt that has not been dealt with in a godly, biblical way. People will go back 5, 10, 15, 20 years and open up those closets. Say, oh, but John, you remember when? And John sort of ducks. And after the wife has robbed her volley, then John comes rolling back with his. Oh, wait, Sally, but you remember what you did. Sally ducks. Tragic. The Bible, however, is a tremendous book. It helps me in dealing 
with guilt. It releases me from depression. It frees me from discouragement. But how does that happen? Turn with me to your green sheet, will you? We want to look at a man named Peter. Let me set the stage for you. As you walk through these sheets, you will find four situations. The Mark passage will take you to the garden where Christ is going to pray. But prior to Christ praying, he speaks to his men in Mark. Listen to what Jesus says and listen to Peter's response. In John 18, they're just leaving the garden and Judas and the men come to arrest Christ. Watch Peter's response. In the Luke 22 passage, Christ has been led away to be tried. Peter follows at a distance. Watch his response. In John 21, Christ has gone to a cross, has died, has risen from the dead, and in John 21, he meets his men on the beach. As you study this, continually ask yourself the question, if you were Peter, how would you be feeling now? If you were Peter, how would you be feeling now? Again, if you'll study it by using that second sheet, whenever you see something about the nature of God, write it down. Whenever you see something about the nature of man, and you'll see many things in this passage about the nature of man, write it down. Whenever you see something about the plan of God or the process of God, write it down. Let me say this. I really want to say thanks for how well you wrote last night. In no way will we endeavor to cover all that you wrote down. But let your mind work into the text, and then I'll take you a little further, okay? Have a good time as you read, and it will be sort of a quick reading course. So have a good time. Because at the time, let's walk through rapidly and see what we can discover, all right? In Mark chapter 14, verse 27, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. You will all stumble. Here Jesus lets men know a little bit about his nature. God knows what men will do. Now that's very shocking. And it's often misunderstood to think that God makes men do what men do. No, we have a free will. But God knows what you will do because of his nature. He knows everything. He knows the patterns that you have developed and will go on developing or the patterns you'll let him develop. We follow on and we come to verse 29 and we watch now the nature of man's surface. But Peter said to him, even though all may stumble, yet I will not. And here we see the nature of man coming out. Peter disagrees with God. Peter doesn't believe God. What do you mean? Everybody else does. 
Well, I won't. Jesus, you don't understand me. How dare you say that I'll stumble? I wouldn't think of it. Even if everybody else does, I won't. The Lord says, well, be careful. This night, verse 30, before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And the nature of man keeps coming through in verse 31. Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then we watch the nature of man, John 18, verse 10. Simon Peter therefore has a sword. They've come to arrest Christ, verse 10. He drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. I think we would say Peter missed. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. And here is Peter with Jesus and the other disciples. Boy, is he daring. Now come to verse 57 of Luke 22. Verse 56, verse, And a certain servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the firelight, and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him also. And Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. But a little later another saw him. Verse 58, You are one of them also. But Peter, Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. It's interesting how Peter is shaped by a situation. The nature of man comes through. So much for Christ when he's there with the disciples in the garden with Jesus. And literally a few hours later can say, I don't even know it. How well Peter reminds us of what we are like. How easy it is to be Peter-like and to find your nature. One minute. You're convinced Christ is the answer, and boy, you're for him. The next minute, you deny him. How easy that is to do. But then verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. The nature of man finds that God's word gets in. Oh, you can ignore it. You can say you disagree with it. You can fight it. But when God has said something to you, beware. You're likely to remember it, whether you want to do it or not. And then verse 62, what a tragic verse. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Crushed by his guilt. If you were Peter at that point, how would you feel? How would you have felt in the garden when Jesus said, you're going to stumble, and you said, I won't! 
Confidence level high, conviction level strong. But something has happened a few hours later, and now you're outside all alone, weeping bitterly. And then the nature of man surfaces in another way, John 21, verse 3. Peter said to them, and if we had the first two verses of John 21, he said to Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and two of the other disciples, this is what he said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. There's an interesting principle here. Follow it very carefully. What was Peter before Christ called him? A fisherman. And Christ called him to leave the fish and to leave the nets and to leave the boat, to leave that and turn and follow Christ and not be a task-oriented person, but a person-oriented person. We will fish for men. I will make you to be fishers of men. Human life will be more important than fish life. Fish life will be a vehicle to feed human life. Three meals a day, maybe. But Peter, I want the priority to be in humans. But now in the midst of Peter's guilt, he does that which is a very natural response to guilt. He returned to what he was and where he was. I'm convinced that Peter was anything but an encouraged man at this point. And so he returned to fishing. It's so easy when you're embarrassed, when you've made a fool of yourself, to leave the group that you are with, to leave the situation and return to what you once were and to where you once were. Peter went back to what he was and where he was. Went back to old patterns, to old values, to old practices. It's a very easy thing to do. But in the midst of this, God is a God of plan. Amazing plan. And in this plan, it's crucial to understand that the plan of God always goes out of the nature of God. Verse 4, John 21. And when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. That which is an amazing characteristic of the nature of God is he goes where people are. God's plan always goes out of his nature. Jesus knew where Peter was. Jesus knew the hurt that he felt. And Jesus loved him. And so the nature of God surfaces and Jesus goes and stands on the beach. And now the plan of God is going to start to unfold. John chapter 21. Read verse 5. And here we see a beautiful expression of the plan of God. Listen to it. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, now that was very humbling, you do not have any fish, do you? 
They answered him, no. In God's plan is the fact that God comes to the situation, observes it, and asks about it. God is not oblivious to your situation. God is not turned away from your situation. He's always turned toward it. And God comes and observes. And then he asks, he says, hey guys, do you have any fish? I'm sure they were embarrassed. They were fishermen by trade. No, we don't have any fish. And then this ridiculous statement. And Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. Well, what is this guy anyway? What's with this? We've been out here all night. We haven't caught anything. Why does he suddenly think that we can catch him now? Who is this giving us these orders? Doesn't he understand who we are? We're fishermen. The Lord says, no way. Cast the net on the right side, and you will find a catch. In the plan of God, God gives directive. Now again, this can be very frustrating to an insecure person. And it can be very frustrating if you don't understand the nature of God. That when God gives you direction, it's out of love for you. Not because he wants to wreck your life, he wants to build your life. Not because he wants to disappoint you, he wants to bless you. And not only does God give directives, but he guarantees results. That which our culture constantly wants to know about, whenever you sign up for something, if you go out to, to sign up with a firm, you're going to work for it. You want to know what kind of benefits? What am I guaranteed? Will I be guaranteed promotions after six months for a year? Will I be in the same rung in the company for 10 years? What can you guarantee me? What will be the results if I give myself to you? In the plan of God, God makes it very plain. Not only will I give you directives, but I will guarantee results. And so, verse 6, they cast the net, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. In doing the process, the plan of God, it involves obedience to God's directive. It's one thing to know what God wants you to do. It's another thing to cast the net over the side of the boat. It's one thing to say, boy, it is important. It's another thing to put the net back down in the water again. It's one thing to say, boy, I think the Lord is really special and fine and wonderful and his plan is outstanding and keep the net in the boat. It's another thing to say, Lord, even though I've done this all night and haven't caught any fish, if you tell me to put it over the side of the boat, I'll put it over the side of the boat. And never will I know the fullness of God without being involved in the process of God. And that says, I take the net and cast it over the side of the boat. They were shocked with all they had caught. And then there's a beautiful part of the process, verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Crucial to the process of God is he uses what you have.
God really uses what you have. This, I have a hunch, really is one of the greatest fears that you have. That if you would really respond to all that Christ is and to all that he says, I think many of you feel that about 90% of your life would never be developed. And if somehow you could realize that the body you sit in, God made, and all the capacities in that body, God put there. And all the potential in that body, God put there. Whether mental potential, social potential, aesthetic potential, or so on, God put it there. And God is not a wasteful God. Humanity today illustrates well that we are wasteful. All the clutter in the environment. But God is not a wasteful God. God wants to make use of all that he has put within you and all that you have. That's crucial to the process of God. And then verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Wow. Jesus participates with people in life. He's not a far-off God way out there in the clouds somewhere. He really participates with people. And as he does, he says something. Notice what he said. Will you come and as you have breakfast, now Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. It's awesome the sense that God serves us. Amazing. The nature of God. God is a servant God. And to those who respond to the living God in Christ, that's why we are to become servants. That is our mark of identity. I am a servant. And as God serves humanity, he does something else. Follow carefully the plan of God. Come to verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, they finished breakfast, and always in the plan of God there will be questions. I'm sure you have questions about the plan of God. I do too. But remember, God will have some questions as well. Christ asks questions of people, and he says to people, Simon, do you love me more than these? Because you see, in the process of God, God wants to know if he is first in your affections. Do you love God more than anyone or anything else? Do you? And if you don't, it's called emotional theology. Your relationship to God is not anywhere near what it could be. You're the one laying the ground rules for the relationship. And God just doesn't let us do that. God lays the ground rules. Because he's God. And then the Lord keeps asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? When Christ asks you questions, he requires response. 
He requires response. And then the Lord does something which to me illustrates so vividly that Christ, that God is so different from men. Verse 15, And he said to him, Tend my lambs. Verse 16, Shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, Tend my sheep. If you were Jesus, would you have treated Peter that way? In view of how Peter treated you in the garden? Would you have wanted to give responsibility to Peter? Is that the stance you would have taken toward Peter? Peter, I want to give you some responsibility. Feed my lamb. That's amazing, isn't it? God's plan is very different from our plan. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I want to look at three verses and work on one phrase. Now let's come back for a second. How many of you can sort of empathize with Peter in this? You can sort of say, gee, boy, yeah. I think I might have said what Peter did in the garden. And then, you know, I have a hunch around the fire, I might have said what Peter said there. And I might have gone out and wept bitterly as well. And I know that even I have chapters in my life that illustrate that in the midst of guilt, I always go back. I go back to old habits. I go back to old values. I go back to old thought patterns. I go back to old friendships that are not healthy friendships. I find that in the midst of discouragement with myself, because I disappointed myself as well as Christ, that I go back. Boy, it's shocking to see that Jesus would even would even want me to care for his sheep. Maybe so shocking it's hard to handle because you feel so unworthy. So unworthy. And suddenly you begin to see you'll never be worthy of the love of Christ. Never. Talk about pride. To think that you and I could ever be worthy of the love of God. Talk about ego. To think that you and I would ever be worthy of God sending his son Christ to die on a cross. As though we could deserve that and earn that and be good enough for that. Talk about obnoxious self-image. Paul writes to some people, verse 13 of chapter 2. Some of this language will be a little cumbersome. I will try to simplify it. When you were dead in your transgression, when you just kept doing things you knew you shouldn't do, middle of the verse, God made you alive together with Christ. 
Now there are four havings that are going to come. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, having nailed it to the cross, having triumphed over those debts through Christ. I want to talk about the certificate of death. During the time of the Roman Empire, when you would be taken into a court of law, they would write out all of the wrongs that you had done on a certificate of debt. You were a debtor to pay that. You would then be sent to a cell. And there, nailed to the wooden door of your cell, would be your certificate of debt. You did this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong, and this wrong. And whenever people walked by your cell, they would see the certificate of debt. And somehow that has to be dealt with. And eventually there would be figured out possibly a way whereby your debts, your sins, your wrongs could be dealt with. And when they had all been dealt with, then as you would be released, they would remove that certificate of death from the door of your cell. And they would roll it up and hand it to you. Thereby saying, all of the wrongs you have done have been paid for. And Paul speaks to those in the Roman Empire and says, listen, Christ, Christ has canceled out the certificate of debt. Christ has gone to a cross. And there on that cross was nailed the certificate of debt, the sins carefully listed of Chuck Miller. And there on the cross, Christ calls out, It is finished! And that same Greek word can be translated, Paid in full. And Christ says, This is what I want humanity to know. I came to earth to handle the certificate of death, the list of sins that we all have committed. And I will take those sins to a cross. And the sins of the people prior to Christ and during the time of Christ and all the way following Christ, they will be nailed to a cross. And Christ wants to sit down with each single person in the human race and say, listen to me. You're not in a cell, a slave to sin a slave to your past, paralyzed by guilt. For I walked by your cell, and I took the certificate of debt off the door of your cell, and I took it with me and nailed it on a cross. And I have paid your debt in full. That's the excitement of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to deal with guilt. To know that the one who has seen everything you've ever thought, the one who has seen everything you've ever done, 
the one who knows every word you've ever said. He would love to sit down beside you and say, let me tell you some news. I paid in full. And he would like to take and roll up that certificate of debt that has your name on the top and has all the guilt and baggage you carry on you. And he'd like to hand it back to you and say, now look at the sins you've committed. And you open and roll out that big long list that was nailed to that door of your cell which changed you in guilt. And you roll out that sheet of paper and it's blank. It's blank. It's blank. And God sees you as one who has never sinned. Awesome. Humanly uninventable. But a gift of God. And I believe that that which freed Peter to do a very, a very remarkable act in John 21 was this. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, what would you have done at that point if you were Peter? Most of us would have fallen through the boat. But notice what it says. It is the Lord! And so when Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his armor, outer garment and threw himself into the sea and went to the Lord. Why? Because he knew that his sins had been forgiven. That Christ had paid in full for that tragic sin of his in the garden. And there around the fire. Where are you? Where are you in relation to Peter? Listen as I share some places where you might be, and then I'd like us just to meditate on that. Just lean back and really let this get in. Don't pack up shop. Just listen. Are you the Peter? Is this where you are? Your shoulders are squared and you say, I'll never stumble. Is that where you are? That might not be a wise place to be. Where are you? Have you been sitting around the fire? And people have said, oh, you're a Christian. You're one of those Jesus people. And all of a sudden you get nervous, stutter and stammer. And, hey, what? Well, what, 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 you know, well, don't misunderstand me. Well, I no. Oh. Where are you? Have you so broken your own heart and broken Christ's heart that you've gone off and and you're off there just weeping bitterly. 
Where are you? The weeping's over. That, that softness towards God has slipped away from you. And you've gone back to your neck. Back to your neck. You've gone back to old habits. You've gone back to old relationships that are not building for you. You've gone back to old thought patterns. It used to be that as, after you came to Christ, you were so grateful. You were just awed. You were so appreciative of Christ and of the people of Christ. You just love God's people so much. But now you've disappointed yourself. You've disappointed Christ. You wept about it for a week, but now forget it. You can't handle that too much. So you're back with your net. The net of criticalness instead of gratefulness. The old thought patterns have surfaced. The old attitudes have surfaced. You're back with your net. Where are you? Jesus said, would you tend my sheep? Wouldn't you care for my people? Oh, we need you to. Peter, feed my sheep. You assumed responsibility once to care for the people of God. You got injured by somebody and now you've said bag it. You're a Christian doing your own thing. You could care less about God's sheep. Caring for God's family. Where is you? Where are you? Maybe, maybe you've never understood the excitement that guilt can be removed, that freedom can come because it is finished. Your sin, your death, the wrongs you have done have been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And he offers to you forgiveness. He offers to you a relationship with himself. Maybe your response needs to be like Peter. That the minute you hear it is the Lord, you jump out of that chair, out of that boat, and you get into Jesus. There's nothing more thrilling no matter where you are. No matter where you are than to jump out of that boat and get on that beach with Jesus. Would you like to? Would you like to? Where are you? You just think about it. And where do you want to go? It is the Lord charge that beach. Heads are bowed. Just think of it. God loves you. Jesus really loves you. Even when you can't love yourself, Jesus loves you. Even when you hurt him, he loves you. Cover up your sin. And someday God will uncover it at the judgment. 
uncover your sin to Christ and Christ will cover it up immediately and forgive it. And you'll know freedom. Freedom from guilt. A wonderful sense of joy rather than depression and discouragement. Father, as you spoke to Peter there, you wanted a response. I pray that we would understand that. Make us a people, Lord, who will respond to you. Who, who will respond honestly. Not as fully. But Lord, may we also respond wisely. Lord, I pray that that the person here who has just wept bitterly would not go back to their nets, but they would come roaring back to the Lord, literally in the next couple of minutes. I pray for the one who sat in groups and denied Christ. They would slip out Figuratively speaking, and we say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And I do love you more than anyone or anything else. I want you. Lord, for the one that says, I'll never stumble, or I don't need God. For the one who disagrees with God, show them the foolishness of that. Lord, for the one who's tired of caring for the sheep. So they've pulled back and now they're just real guilty because they haven't cared for the Christians. They just said, enough to the body of Christ, just them and Jesus. And they do become worn out.